0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School,
1: Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. This is Catherine Klein on Dollars and Change. And I'm Sandy Hunt. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. It's great to be on the air and continuing this sequence of really interesting guests. And we're <laughs> delighted to have a guest in the studio with us. Always a treat when we get to talk to people in person. Uh, our guest in this half hour is Vaughn bon Koo. Uh, He's the Assistant Dean for Health and Design. That design is a key word here. Uh, and an Associate Professor at the Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University. He's a practicing emergency medicine physician and the founder and director of the first design thinking program in a medical school. We'll also note that he's a graduate of – Welcome back. Yeah, graduate (laughs) at at Penn, a VA from Penn in classical studies before going on to medical school. Um, But your focus now – it sounds like when you're not being an emergency medicine physician and working the overnight shift, as you said, is design thinking – what is design thinking for listeners who don't know and how is this impo- why is this important to teach in a medical school
2: uh thanks for having me here so the yeah, design thinking has its roots in product design and it's a methodology that has been used uh by by folks uh, to really rapidly accelerate innovation in different sectors. And it's been embraced recently by the business sector on driving innovation. And some of the elements for design thinking is rapid prototyping, ideation, testing. And and in healthcare, uh, I was frustrated because... We don't innovate well, and the mm. innovation cycle is so long. And, and we've been looking at this process and go, hey, can we apply design thinking or human-centered design to healthcare? Can we Can we use it to innovate and uh, redesign our services, the medical devices that we produce, the, um, uh, the care that we deliver? And so three years ago, we started the first uh, design thinking program in a medical school. And um, my background is in classical studies. I studied that here at Penn. And I am not a designer, so I had no idea what I was doing. So it's been it's been a journey, uh, and it's been an exciting one.
1: That's interesting. That's interesting. I, ha- I have to say that sometimes I think being a generalist. I mean, there are ways in which I'm quite a generalist in my role as the vice dean for social impact, and uh, which means that I'm drawing on I draw all the time on other faculty members' knowledge, other resources, and you know I think that I have to I have to, and I think there are actually real benefits to that. You know, I, I, so. Uh, I, th- I, think I agree. That can work. As a yeah. member of the yeah. team, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I think I think that can I think that can work. Um, so um, how you know? So I think many of us may have some general sense of design thinking. I, it's interesting that you've um, connected this to innovation. I tend to think of this as particularly connected to implementation. You know, we, we've got this interesting thing, whatever it is, this interesting product or service. Will we actually use it? Do we feel? Do we actually feel comfortable? using it, are there such barriers and friction that like, yeah, that would be good for us, but no. Um, So how, are are there examples that come to mind? You know, are you talking about pills? Are you talking about, um, you know, devices uh, that I might use? Are you talking about my experience going into a, you know, a healthcare center and what, and how, whether I feel welcomed and safe? What's, Where should we – give us examples of how design thinking is at play and, you know, design thinking to improve what?
2: Sure. All all of you both. (laughs) It's a a methodology that really can be used in a variety of of applications in healthcare. So whether you're designing a medical device or redesigning that patient experience that Mm -hmm. someone has Mm -hmm. uh, coming into the hospital – or or thinking about improving the electronic medical record system or developing an app to help patients uh, access healthcare uh, what we do in our program at the medical school is we have design thinking workshops, and we have a challenge for our medical students. And this semester, for example, we are working on how to improve our own emergency department in Center City, where I work. And some of the teams are working with our faculty and, and thinking about how we can improve communication among uh, doctors and nurses and patients. Another team is working on how do we reduce errors in in um, patients who are diagnosed with sepsis. And um Medical errors are actually the third leading cause of death in the U.S. And but we don't, what? we don't, yeah, we don't, we don't have these processes of uh, what do we do about this? I never learn how to deal with s- uh, system uh, system improvement processes in mm-hmm. medical school. I, I spent hours memorizing the Krebs cycle, but I I never learned about you know what do I do about if if a patient has a medical error and and how do I do a root cause analysis? How do I redesign what the practices that we're doing. And I, it, it, this, uh, this has frustrated me incredibly as a practicing uh, physician. And actually, pretty early on in my career, I got really burned out because mm-hmm. a lot of the problems that we were seeing in the emergency department, there are these systemic problems in our society. Oh, you know, we're at the epicenter for the opioid crisis, urban homelessness, gun violence. And I felt that I did not have the toolkit to be able to know how to even tackle these problems. Yeah.
1: Wow, I I I, I uh, so as I as I mentioned, I did I did research in an uh, emergency room, a trauma trauma center that shall remain nameless. But listening to you, one of the just the absolute stunningly bad experiences it, uh, that I had, which was really watching a stunningly bad process, was that a that a patient had um, there had been a, a serious medical error. I don't remember if the patient had died or had, but it was very clear that it was a very serious medical error. And I was watching the surgical fellow deal with um, his team of residents about what had happened. And he actually said to them, I mean, verbatim, I made a mistake last Friday. I trusted you. I was like, Oh my God! You know, like uh, uh, so. This is this is right, a how many,
0: how many management courses <laughs> just, did you take <laughs> in medical school, yeah. right? right, right. So, so, As you know, a management so, professor, right. this holy is not cow. a
1: technical system. I mean, it's a, you know, at some point, it is fundamentally about communication and and learning from errors. Like, oh my God! Yeah. So it came to that, mind I that is to you.
2: not un- uncommon, yeah. and that that's been my experience with. Um, Medical school, medical school training, residency training, uh, the way that we operate in teams. I mean, we, team, um, the delivery of healthcare is team based. Sure. But we never uh, get trained in team based learning. And so that, that interaction that you observe, yeah. it's a common incur- oh, occurrence, oh, yeah. unfortunately, in, in healthcare. Yeah.
0: yeah. One thing um. I'd love to explore so we're talking about innovation. What's, what's like sort of like a consumer best example that our listeners can keep in mind for where design thinking has been great. Is it like the iPhone? Uh, the,
2: the,
0: like something that's done this sort of rapid I, I mean, I, I ideation? Think, I,
2: I think what, uh, what design thinking helps us to do is to have a different mindset and really helps us to reframe problems. And, and one way I see this happening that I see a lot of startup companies mm-hmm. uh, using is, rethinking about where the delivery of health care actually occurs. So we think of it as a it occurs in a brick-and-mortar place, mm-hmm. the hospital or clinic. But we're seeing with telemedicine, we're seeing with the rise of uh, apps and the Internet of Things that the delivery of care is actually happening outside of the hospitals and in homes. So I see a lot of the processes of rapid prototyping and iteration um, and really thinking outside of, of the box in kind of those applications right now in, in health in healthcare. I mean, healthcare system is blowing up. I mean, we yeah. it is it is an incredible time right now in healthcare.
0: And so I'm wondering, you know, one of the things when we talk to entrepreneurs and we're talking about design thinking, it's about innovation, a huge comfort around risk, right? There's lots of like fail fast, and I don't want my doctor saying fail fast, right? Like uh-huh. I don't want to be the person that you're taking a risk on. So tell us how that balance of risk shows up that's so valuable and necessary and present in in innovation and the need to to have very low margins of error because you're dealing with people's lives
2: sure uh yep as as doctors we are risk-averse. Yeah. We, we Good. Th- this whole fail fast, <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I first listened to it, I was like, what is that? I yeah. mean, I don't want to fail. Yes, yeah. Very few of us has failed, right? We've gotten A's all throughout yes, uh, yes. college <laughs> and, the and, and medical <laughs> school. So, yeah, we're not going to be failing fast when a neurosurgeon does uh, a brain operation, a craniotomy, right? That is, that's something that there's, we're not experimenting. Goodness, yeah. there. We're sure, not, sure, we're sure. not prototyping. but
0: innovation has to happen, right? Like, yes. I don't want it being done the same way it was a hundred years yes. ago either. So, yeah.
2: and and but you know, there's a lot of examples where we can fail fast, and and that's not going to harm patients. So a lot of it is like, improving our services, okay. or improving the patient experience. of one of our teams are, you know, we've been looking at how we can improve communication in in the emergency department, and. And this summer, uh, we're going to take some of the best uh, ideas coming from our students. And it's this rapid uh, rapid prototyping. So if if it's a messaging system that we have where we have a, um, uh, a screen in the patient's room that identifies what provider is actually seeing the patient, we could test that out like in a day and really get some feedback from that. So normally we're not used to moving that fast in, in in healthcare. We are one of the most slowest moving industries and uh it's, it's a complex industry, but we're trying to change our mindsets around what we can actually do in when and in, in, uh innovating within healthcare.
1: And and what are some of the the kinds of ideas that your you know that your students have had either ones that you're looking forward to try uh, or ones you've tried, you know, and and seen succeed or fail?
2: Sure. Um what so we have um, at this lab in our in our hospital and um and we have uh, we explore newer and emerging technologies and see how we can apply that to mm-hmm, healthcare. Mm-hmm. And, and one of those is uh, 3D printing. yeah and 3D printing is is great uh, because we could we could print um, an anatomical model directly from a CAT scan or MRI. Wow. And so we're, we're we're helping our head and neck cancer surgeons actually prepare for their complex surgeries by Pre-printing mandibles or uh, parts of a patient's face to help them plan for those surgeries, and wow, and that's is this not
1: wildly expensive, or no,
2: it's it's super cheap. It it costs dollars. That's why it's wow. uh, that's Holy why boy, it's yeah. amazing. And, and so, and so that... this is
0: like my jaw. Like I'm going in for surgery, and and the surgeon rather than having the, mm. you know, the sort of like dummies they've had for decades, gets a 3D model of this exact jaw.
2: Correct. Yeah. Normally it's just a it's a two-dimensional CAT scan, but uh, from those CAT scans, we're able to three D print these mandibles or jaws uh, for dollars, so cool. and and you know, it's it's a it's a haptic feedback for a surgeon, and it's it's going to haptic we, feedback. What is haptic? Well, I mean, it sounds what like you, mean? You, you know, just uh, it's and it's it's an actual real model that a surgeon could touch, yeah, and and actually help plan for for the surgery better, yeah. So I, I think that's going to be the way to the future. I think we, as uh, Going into uh, operations, uh, I think it's going to be commonplace to have a 3D model of, of the bone or part of your body that's going to be explored. It
1: just, it just seems like that would just have to be helpful, right, yeah. you know, yeah. Take get some of the, the mystery of yeah. surgery. Like, I know what's coming before I, yeah. before I cut. We're, we're talking with Bon Koo. He's the Assistant Dean for Health and Design, Associate Professor at the Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University. Call us with your questions about you know medicine, improvements in medicine. What kind of improvements would you like to see? What's what have you experienced in your own healthcare recently? And you're thinking there's got to be a better way because you know maybe there is. Uh, we're at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Sandy, you look like you're just dying to ask yeah, a question. So, yes, I do. Uh-huh. So
0: I'm wondering, are you? Is this a mandatory um, part of the curriculum now for medical students? And do you see this sort of do you see a shift happening in all medical curriculum? You know, well, every doctor in a couple of years ha- have taken design thinking courses and user experience testing courses.
2: It's um, it's an actual track within our medical school. So it's it's pretty amazing. So they, they can opt in. They can opt in. Okay. And so we have about 80 students right now in, in our program. and. Right now, we, we you know medical school. The last time there was reform was in 1910. Um, mm. That was mm. it was uh, an educator named Abraham Flexner, and he created this two plus two model, where you have two years when you're in the classroom learning sciences, two years when you're on the wards learning from uh, attending physicians like myself. Uh, and that's really rude. And for that time in 1910, it was innovative. It was amazing. Uh, but healthcare, I think, has changed uh, chilling since, since for 100 then, right? Years. Uh, <laughs> no years you know, And that was, you know, it was, and we're kind of stuck in this biomedical framework of understanding disease. And that's great, but you know, we're missing out on all these non-medical factors that uh, impact health. Right? Only 20 percent of healthcare is determined by what I do in a hospital or clinic. The other 80% are due to non-medical factors and what we call you know, these social determinants of so your, your income, what you eat, where you live, your education. And, and only recently have we, have we been exploring how those non-medical factors impact health. So I could give a patient a blood pressure medication for the hypertension, but if they're, if they're smoking, if they're uh, not taking their medications, they're going to have worse health outcomes so we're, we're thinking about more of kind of behavior change and how do, how how do we redesign um uh, how we deliver healthcare
1: interesting i th- you know and i think i've been reading that there's been a lot of interest in uh, compliance do so you take your medicine mm-hmm. and apps to remind people and so on or uh, ways to reward people i think i've seen that those those apps and reward systems incentive systems are not as effective as one would imagine is is that right? Is that what you're seeing in this? And you know, like the, the there's still innovation needed to figure out how to get folks to actually take their medicine.
2: Great. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I, I get I get pitched a new app on medication <laughs> compliance like every other day, and <laughs> I have to take a pill a day. I forget all the time. And I'm a physician, and it's it's a hard issue. And I think I'm really there's
1: really good about this. I have to take one pill a day. I do not
0: forget. <laughs> I <but> wonder. <laughs> I wonder if there's a gender component. Because yeah. for a lot of women, there are a lot of years yeah. of their life yeah. that they <laughs> right. That, are very strongly motivated to to remember to take one pill.
2: Yeah, but there is uh, a much needed uh, work to be done and actually the science of delivery. I mean, Mm -hmm. we, we know what works, but we don't know how to implement that, and, right. and that's why I think a human-centered design process, where we develop empathy for our patients or end users, that by having a deep understanding of their needs, we're able to figure out uh, how to better implement the solutions that we know that actually work.
1: Yeah, God, it's so interesting. It is bringing—I mean, it is bringing to mind just so many. Uh, you know, my own experience is you know—at reading uh, leading a reasonably healthy life, but my own experience of healthcare at different times. All right, I'm going to tell two quick stories. Now tell when. Um, So I had breast cancer seven years ago, had, uh, you know, had chemo. And because I just didn't really want to lose my hair, I happened to ask, right? I happened to ask the doctor, like, really? I don't want to lose my hair. Like, really? Is there nothing I can do? Really? Uh, And I, you know, asked that question two or three times, at which point my oncologist said, there are these things called cold caps. Maybe you could try them. Uh, And, by the way, they worked, and I kept my hair during chemo, and it was super empowering, and it was great. Um, But, man, oh, man, they are difficult to use. People, uh, you know, my doctor's office will refer uh, patients to me. And what I've learned is you have to have... The patients who actually use these cumbersome things to freeze your, you know, it's very cold. My, uh, you know, the, the, minus minus it 30, freezes your hair follicle. Or, yeah, okay. yeah, they are. You know, i the way I've described the ones I penguin cold caps that I experienced. They were like if you imagine a disposable diaper, mm-hmm. imagine that this thing is gel filled. It's frozen to minus thirty degrees centigrade. Um, and it's got it's got Velcro. And you put it on your head. Of course, it's frozen. It's not that easy to bend it around your head. And so you have somebody, a support system helping you. Mm-hmm. Wrap this thing tight around your head with Velcro. So it's really cold. And I would do this for an hour before chemo, during chemo, and for four hours after chemo. It, it restricts blood flow to the follicles and allows you to keep your hair, right? So I would have been completely bald, and lost body hair elsewhere, didn't lose it on my head. Uh, Really nice to go out in the world, to continue exercising, to feel empowered, to feel like this is still me. This is my identity. I don't look at myself in the mirror and think, oh, my God, I'm so sick.
2: And I I, I love that example because what we're seeing more is that patients are experts. I mean, they know their diseases better than the physician. And then what we're seeing now is, you know, with the rise of social media and the Internet of Things that – that patients have, uh, they're forming these knowledge-sharing communities. Absolutely. And they're able to, you are right. y- you in that situation were, were much better than the connect, a breast right. cancer surgeon to yes. connect with other patients and explain to them right. and, and give them yeah. guidance. Yeah. So,
1: I, and I will say breastcancer.org has, you know, just so much information mm-hmm. and so many patients. Yeah. But, but it took a lot of proactivity. It took a lot of, you know, proactivity. It took a support system. Mm-hmm. And, and they're very difficult to use, right? So it's just one example yeah. as this comes to mind of, like you know, a lot of people would love to forego this this side effect yeah. uh, if they could, and, uh, but it's tough to do that. Well,
0: yeah. and I think this raises it, an interesting topic around the expected agency of the patient, right? Because to your it's point, a really good way of putting it, you know. Yeah. Uh, I never know if it's a good thing or a bad thing to go into a doctor's office being like, well, I Googled this. Like, yeah. I know you went to medical school, but when I was on the train, yeah. I, Googled, <laughs> I Googled this. And so, you know, I think we're seeing this huge shift as you're saying that there are ways to learn. And um, and you want to go in as as an empowered, uh, you know, individual. I had, um, you know, advocated for a particular test during a pregnancy and they were sort of like, yeah, sure, we could do that. But I suspect that had I not asked, it wouldn't have come up. Mm-hmm. And what it makes me just m- mull on, I don't know what the right answer is, is, you know, is that burden then put on the patient? You right. know, will we see the shift where doctors exp- and the medical medical professionals expect you to come in knowing more? And then there's this big uh you know, I think question of of justice and ability because I read about this test in an article I accessed because I work at Penn, right? Like this was some expensive report that some medical school put out, and I read it because I was here and oh, yeah. I had the time yeah. and I wasn't working three part time jobs to cover my rent. Like, right. so it does. I you know it could have the potential both to democratize things and to sort of drive this wedge for accessibility. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, can you fix yeah, this? Yeah, I know. <laughs> What's well, I happening? mean,
2: uh, when when uh, patients first started googling their symptoms, I, I would get annoyed. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, oh my gosh! Oh my god! I bet you're 21 years old. You're not dying of a heart attack. Yeah, you do at home. And but I've, there's been a shift where the knowledge that patients are accessing are much better. Hmm. Patients are huh. becoming a lot smarter, and and the. It is a very traditional hierarchy and that we've, as physicians, had this knowledge domain expertise that patients have not had. Mm-hmm. But that's blowing up right now. I mean, I one time I was taking care of a patient who had a headache and, and, and she Googled her symptoms. She goes, I think I have an ophthalmic mag- migraine. I'm like, you're right. Ah! And I was like, that is amazing. But I don't get annoyed by that. I think that's great. That's and great. I think we're going to be seeing more and more of that. And I think with technology that my function is going to change. I, probably 50% of what I do 10 years from now, I'm not going to be doing anymore. Mm. And I've seen that in, in my own mm. career where, you know, before I used to have to read my own EKGs when the patient came in with chest pain. Now they get a computer readout, that's mm. pretty good. And yeah. we're going to be seeing AI come in with diagnostic uh, imaging. And, and, and not that I'm going to read... Be replaced i hope not but i, I think uh that's why we, we also all...
0: talked to our previous guests about the retirement <laughs> plans yeah.
2: but that's you know that's why we teach our students to be able to uh think creatively to uh because the landscape is changing so much yeah
0: and now i have a question for both of you yeah because Catherine's a psychologist by oh my so goodness. something that i can't help but think about is right you let's say you're this person you google headache right okay, well, you could have one of these three things. People seek answers, right, in general, that's comforting to know what's happening to your body. Do you think there's any concern that the access to information is going to lead to inaccurate um, reporting of symptoms where they're like, well, I have two of these things, and so, you know, yeah, I've been itchy, you know, or or sort of, you know, adding on, creating, you know, because I'm sure there's a lot of science around this, like psychological, if you believe... Right, you have it. Right, you know. People talk about lice in a room with you. Your head starts to itch, right? Like, right,
1: right. I'll quickly offer just two. Uh, you know, what one, one more personal, and one more, uh, one more research base that come to mind by your questions, Andy. So, for years, I had sinus infections, and I had bad sinus infections, um, and um, I had sinus infections with incredibly little pain. Um, so, so they lasted a really long time. It would put me on a lot of antibiotics and so on, and I learned. The symptoms to tell my doctor, uh-huh. you know, because there's really no way to diagnose one without a, like a CAT scan, uh, you know, yeah. right? So, and, the, and doctors not going to do a CAT scan very often for a sinus infection. So I learned what to tell them. Like, I know that if I tell them these system, symptoms that I'm self-diagnosing, I'll get antibiotics. I'm... You know, and, and it's I an want, interesting question. I love my antibiotics, <laughs> and it's you're a really you're interesting doctors. question. I love it. Yeah, yeah. If, you know, <laughs> did I, you know, did I overdiagnose? You know, I finally ran into a doctor. You know, it got it had a new internist, and she said, you know, like. You had a hell of a lot of antibiotics, and and you know what's up with that? It's like oh, so I'm, <laughs> right. you know, it's I'm like knowing some, how to reach co- the customer to, service right. manager, you know, right? I have a little cold right now, and I'm I'm not reaching for the antibiotics. So actually, that's one. Mm-hmm. The other thought, you know, on the contagion effect—is um, that what it's called? Well, I, yeah, I think so. You know, and so one of the things that we certainly get taught in psychology—I haven't done this brand of psychology for a very long time—but. Um, I think I don't know what time period we may be talking like the late 1800s early 1900s there was a um, you know people and a lot young women got hysteria and hysteria is a, a, a your limb your arm being paralyzed like it was paralyzed they could not move this it was totally psychosomatic the re, you know a reflection of anxiety depression other psychological factors Manifesting in this, um, and you know, it was quite contagious. And we know that there are other contagious. Well, contagious in the sense not your cat, like of That's. contagious as in socially contagious. If you live, you know, on a college campus with two women who I know it's more women than men, okay. but if you live with two roommates because it's men as well who have an eating disorder, mm. you know. And, and you have any proclivity, any mindset to worry about your weight, any, you know, any of these, the systems that make people more uh, you know, likely to have an eating disorder, well, you know, you can catch it. It's really, you know, really catch it in the sense huh. of. Um, the social, norms the social norm. The social norm. This becomes, you know, like, oh, they're worrying about this. Should I worry about what huh. I eat? You know? And other, other factors that are, you know, that are like this. So those are the two things like, that yeah, come to mind yeah, yeah. when you think about how do people use the information that they, that they hear. Um, yeah. You know, like smokers. I mean, smoking would be another thing that's contagious uh, in the sense of you live with smokers, you start to smoke. Huh. Yeah. So all right, and those it's, are my for, not... it's for better
0: and worse, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like
1: yeah. You, so, yeah. Someone starts to eat healthier. Yeah. You can, or we, someone quits smoking. Right. 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 There was, was that old research on note yeah, of optimism to, to yeah, our listeners. Did. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. All right. So give us the real medical. This <laughs> is arm, <laughs> armchair psychology. No, I'm over here. two types <laughs> of doctors. Yeah. I want this answer from both. I mean,
2: of you. medicine has been very paternalistic. That that doctors have the expertise and doctors have the data. And, but that's, that's, that model is, it's, it's gone, right? The knowledge is out there. So we can't protect who gets the knowledge. And, and also we can't protect data, right? Data has been a patient's data historically has been held by insurers and health systems. And, and w- but patients produce that data. They should own that data. They should decide what to do with that data, and, th- and that's 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 my point of, okay. of, of of view. And so, I think we're gonna we're it, we are going to we we do not know what that the next 10, 20 years are gonna look like because information is available out there right now. So I think our responsibility is to kind of help our patients uh, help them with their with their data, uh, both on kind of on their own diagnoses, on their own health information.
1: Yeah. So, uh, we're, we're talking with Dr. Bon Koo, Assistant Dean for Health and Design at Jefferson University. Sandy, one of the questions you asked got me to thinking about what we know, and I'd love your thoughts about this, and uh, about bias, uh, bias racism in healthcare, Aww. right? We know that, that, uh, for example, African American women are far more likely to, to die of breast cancer. Uh, uh, than our than our white women huge difference in maternal mortality yeah, as well you know huge differences <laughs> yeah. and and you know my understanding is that that even when you control for education and income, these uh differences persist um, you know I'd love to uh, help our help us help our listeners understand you know is this true what are the roots about it and what can we do about it
2: so i I work in a busy urban emergency department and been working there for 10 years. And what I've noticed that is that some patients are sicker than others. Mm -hmm. So they may look the same on the outside. And and it's correlated really with uh, what neighborhoods they live in. And we know in Philadelphia, we have a 20-year difference in life expectancy just by zip code. So if you live in Strawberry Mansion, average life expectancy is 68. Travel three miles south to Center City, like a nice neighborhood like Society Hill, it jumps up to 88. And what we find in those horror zip codes that it is, um, th- these, are neighborhoods predominantly African American, Latino. And, and to me that is, you know, what could be more unjust than if you were born into one of these zip codes and you die right. 20 years, uh younger. And, and I a- see that. And is it
0: born or living in?
2: Uh, uh, born and living in. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, that upsets me a lot. And yeah. that's kind of what is drives some of our mission is like, how can we rethink, uh, about uh, about these neighborhoods what what can we do to uh design uh, healthier communities for uh, for people living in the, in these zip codes?
1: and and what about you know what about racial disparities in healthcare outcomes that persist even controlling again this is my understanding I don't know the research very well but even controlling for uh income and education right that the uh you know African American 50-year-old professor uh, is going to have a different outcome than the the you know, white fifty year old mm-hmm. professor. Both making good incomes, both highly educated. Do we see those racial differences in healthcare outcomes? Whether it's you know whether it's um, heart health, cancer outcomes.
2: The uh, the most dramatic example of this I see on on, on, on a weekly basis is uh, gun violence in, in our city, mm. and and those who are shot are young African American males, right? And it happens so frequently, and it just it's. Upsetting. It's it's, it's mind boggling. No, no one does a no one does a root cause analysis of why a twenty year old African American uh, was shot in Philadelphia. Right. And 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 I think if it was a a different gender, you know, if it, if it was a white female college student who was shot, there would be a lot of news about that. Right, you know? And sure. there would be a lot of investigation. Right. Um, and. And so, on a daily basis, I I see this um, Mm -hmm. bias happening Mm -hmm. all all the all the time.
1: Yeah, interesting. So, uh, and and sad. Um, So, you uh, started off by telling us that you know design your exploration into design thinking was new, was something you've been learning, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, learning and and promoting uh, at uh, Jefferson. I'm curious if this has affected your uh, you know, treatment your interactions, you know your practice as a physician, either vis-a-vis your colleagues or vis-a-vis uh, your patients. Does it make a difference in how you do medicine?
2: A- absolutely, you know. I, I mentioned before I was feeling I was getting really burnt out as a physician because of these problems that we're seeing are not so that old. So in, that, intra- is a, that is a sad thought. It, <laughs> it, it, it's very early on in my career it, yeah. this, this happened, and and what design thinking has allowed me to do is become optimistic and to, you know, I think inherent in design is managing a better future state and 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 giving me the tools of uh, how to get there yeah. and and some of our projects that we're doing uh is happening in those cities or, or those neighborhoods where those life outcomes are, are, are the worst and and you know for example this this summer we're launching a program called Collab philadelphia we're partnering with out. Uh, Co- coal out collab. colab a
1: collab. Phil- okay. philadelphia yeah.
2: and it's a uh, about uh making neighborhoods healthier due, through uh, creative placemaking so we're partnering with uh, the Community Design Collaborative, and we're actually going to redesign an Airstream trailer, pop it into uh, communities, uh, some of these poorest neighborhoods, and use it to engage with Philadelphians and and, and run activities out of there that that might improve their health, from health screenings to a pop-up farm stand where we have fresh fruits and vegetables for people who don't have access uh, to them. And I would have never thought I would be doing this early on in my my career, but I think Learning about human-centered design as as really opened my mind and my mindset of that that I can do something to to improve these outcomes in in, uh, in Philadelphia.
0: That's okay. great. I cl- it's very clear. It brings you a lot of joy. I don't see a lot of burnout when <laughs> I'm looking across the the studio at you here. So that's that's fantastic. Um, Last question. Whoa, uh-huh. oh, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> that's <laughs> a really good conversation. Um, what would your so Statistically, most of our listeners are not doctors, right? But we're all patients. What would your advice be to folks in how to think innovatively about their health and their health care?
2: Wow, that's a that's a, that's a great question. I, I would um I and I think it stems from some of the conversation that that we're having that um the relationship has been so paternalistic that a doctor says do this and as a patient you go I'm gonna do it yeah. and, and I think it's okay to search uh, tap into knowledge sharing communities of patient experts out there there's there's a lot of good resources and 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 kind of maybe challenge some some of those um, uh, recommendations or kind of do some own research into that uh, I could share a personal example of my son had a large uh, kidneys um, in uh, in 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 the womb so even before he was born and then uh, the repeat ultrasounds at age six months so enlarged kidneys and we went to a uh, pediatric urologist they recommended getting imaging study but that required him getting an iv and Mm. sedated i'm Mm -hmm. like oh my gosh i don't want to do that there might be complications Mm -hmm. and and i decided to ignore the doctor's advice i talked with my uh friends who were kidney doctors and uh and then he said well worst case scenario your son might just end up having one functioning kidney, but many people live on that. So, so we did that, and then a, a year later, a repeat ultrasound showed that his kidneys were normal size. So, uh, it's kind of one example of how how there, just you know, we have we have better access to yeah. uh, knowledge out there, and we have these expert patient communities. So I, I recommend not. Always challenging sure. position. Don't, don't
0: take it as gospel without any question. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. 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 Great advice. All right, we need to take a break. We've been talking with Dr. Ku, Assistant Dean for Health and Design at Jefferson University. Fascinating conversation. Great. You know, we love your your energy in bringing this design thinking. Design I'm, thinking is yeah. you know is well known to to folks in the business world. Um, you know, and to, as you say, driving innovation and implementation, use of products and services. So great to have this thinking applied to you know from everything from the emergency room to community so thanks for And
0: I'm so happy you're in Philly. Yeah. You know we have
1: these conversations all the time and
0: Great work being done somewhere, and I think God oh, it would be great if that were in Philly. But you're here, yeah. so that's um, that's very heartening. That
1: is very heartening. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be uh, we'll be chatting about our guests, mm-hmm. chatting about other issues. We invite our callers to join us. We're at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So if you've been thinking about your retirement income, your health insurance, your health care. We invite you to to join the conversation. We'll be back after a short break. This is Catherine Klein on Dollars and Change. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.